I'm Andrew Faust. This is Permaculture Perspectives. I'm here on the sun porch at the Center for Bioregional Living, our main campus in Ellenville, where we have a really unique and invaluable educational offering starting June 7th here. A course we only offer once a year at our home and educational site in Ellenville. It is a permaculture design certification course in which we focus on Ulster County, the Rondout drainage, and the Walk Hill, and the watershed systems where we are in proximity to. One of my passions and interests that I'm going to talk about today is water quality. I've been fortunate to be part of a core group that's starting an organization here, which we are calling the Rondout Creek Watershed Alliance. The Rondout is one of the larger tributaries of the Hudson, and we are getting assistance from Riverkeeper in starting this organization. They've been a great help. Some of what I want to say today about water quality and literacy in it in this country is to help people understand why, for instance, at a gathering that happened just recently, I found myself very frustrated and impatient to have a conversation that was more generative rather than lots of legalese and science about water pollution. Now I'm the first to say we need to have good data and analysis of the problem in order to know what the solution is, but I would also be the first to say that it's important to know when you have enough data, the evidence is in, and now it's important to move forward with positive solution-based actions. Many of the organizations that are involved in well-intended water quality work, environmental activist groups, what are called non-governmental organizations in this country, many of them will spend what I feel is an inordinate amount of time discussing nutrient pollution loads. For instance, nitrogen, phosphorus, fecal coliform, enterococcus without any discussion of much more egregious and important contaminants to be doing data collection about that would be, for instance, seeping and leaching into a surface waterway from a adjacent Superfund toxic waste site or landfill. In addition to this arguably reductionist focus that often happens around biological nutrient loads and the imbalance of them in our waterways, which is important. There's inordinate lack of attention to much more significant pollution loads that could kill you prematurely of cancer or cause genetic damage rather than just giving you a stomach flu, which is all that can happen from biological contaminants. Therefore, it seems to me that there is a great deal of education that needs to happen in this country for the general public so that we as a population can say to organizations that are presenting to our watershed group that in fact we can already deduce the source of all of these problems that they are spending hours of time tearing into small tiny bits and explaining to us how we need to collect more data about the sources of contamination of these biological nutrient loads, which, as I mentioned, obfuscate any conversation of much more pernicious and toxic pollutants that we know are also existent in this landscape. To me, an ounce of prevention is where the pound of cure is an axiom that is forgotten when you look at these organizations and how they approach these water quality issues, as well as a lack of appreciation for a broader context to discuss the cause of these pollution problems rather than simply mitigation strategies for the symptom. We are, in the present society, highly focused on symptomatic mitigation with a general lack of focus and lack of awareness about preventative measures, the context that sets the stage for these symptoms, and how do we heal the body, not just the illness. The body of the landscape has been broken, fragmented, denuded, degraded, deforested, over-farmed, 
you get into these interesting tensions when it gets to be a conversation that basically demonizes nutrient loads between farmers and water quality organizations. And I've suggested for a while that this polemic is actually a mistake on two levels. One, the mistake being made is a lack of attention to value-added, highly prosperous tree crops that can provide us with nuts like in this valley we can actually grow the pecan, the Carpathian walnut, the hazelnut, in addition to sustainably, regeneratively, and in a closed-loop way harvesting woodies, as are done in Europe. Plants like the black locust and the willow are used often as forage for livestock. So not only can we make buildings, can we make building materials and fuel and all kinds of value-added products like having nut butters that are grown locally and organically in our riparian buffer zones. These are all possible ways to open up the understanding within our farm communities that in fact trees are productive, valuable, generative agricultural assets. Often it's presented as if, oh, the poor farmer, we have to help them understand how they can get paid for not growing corn right up to the edge of the field or grazing cattle there. Well, and as was clearly pointed out, it's equally problematic for suburban developments to mow their grass right up to the edge of a waterway. Waterways need respect, and part of showing waterways respect is the acknowledgement that they have been degraded, denuded, deforested, polluted and turned into nothing but a toilet bowl for our unused nutrient loads. Those are a sign of poor design, poor infrastructure development, poor land use planning. The only solution to them is to have better land use planning, redesign how it is we farm and how we live in these landscapes to once again acknowledge the fact that rivers, streams, and all bodies of water are sacred, essential elements to good life, healthy life, human well-being. How much of the Earth's water is even something we can drink? And we know when we pull back and look at the big picture that it's maybe 1% of all the water on the planet's surface that's actually available for us to drink. That's never brought up in these water quality groups, or I should say very, very rarely. The other big elephant in the room that is not brought up is rainwater. Can we please discuss exactly how much rainfall the town of, for instance, New Paltz or Ellenville receives? How much does the village collect in a one-inch rain event over its land area surface? These are calculable numbers that engineers who are very good at calculating waste loads and TMDLs aren't actually looking at the broader context and helping us also use some of their empirical scientific acumen to make sense of how do we mitigate at the source where all this effluent and stormwater contamination is coming from. Why are these sewage treatment plants throughout our stream systems overtaxed and polluting the waterways? And it's twofold. It's not simply that they need to do a better job filtering and cleaning it up, which is certainly an aspect of it and largely the only thing that's ever discussed. Right? So what you get into with water quality organizations is lay populations becoming lawyers and scientists trying to hold industries that are often municipal and publicly owned industries into accord with what the basic environmental laws say about nutrient loads that are allowable in our surface streams and waterways. Now the reality is those environmental laws are entirely mediocre and half-baked. However, they're not even enforced. So I certainly concur. They are an important starting point. However, where I would say we need vast improvement is not only starting with enforcing existing environmental laws, but local communities would be well served to articulate a vision of addressing the source of these problems and present that simultaneously with presenting the data about the pollution loads and how to mitigate them right now from the point sources and non-point sources that they are emitting. <clears throat> what I'm getting at here is we'll find in large part a great deal of energy in water quality, watershed, and environmental action groups around these issues with these 
legal measures that we can take to try to get bad actors to come into compliance, which they haven't been doing in many instances for decades running, and which, curiously enough, is actually something that you can find, find all the documented evidence that you need to about it. But a lot of these NGOs act as if they're discovering something anew that's actually already known and on the books. This type of use of time is, to me, a waste and a distraction. We need to talk about the fact that we get a vast amount of rainfall throughout the northeastern United States, usually anywhere from 42 to 52 inches a year of rain. This adds up to very few months ever getting less than two to four inches per month. What this calculates out to will be one single building that has, let's say, a 1,200 square foot roof will be catching throughout one annual cycle somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50,000 gallons of water. Now you start to scale that up and ask yourself, okay, every single impermeable surface in our drainage basin is diverting tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of gallons of water when you look at how much impermeable surface has been created in a place like the village of Ellenville or the village of New Paltz. Or, of course, somewhere like New York City or Boston or Philadelphia. Vast impermeable surfaces. Same thing going on in suburban landscapes. Vast road systems, asphalt systems. Things are paved over, cut down, denuded, degraded in order to, quote, grow food for people or create places that they call home. We need to reforest, regrow, and recreate something that is actually more diverse, complex, and towering above the surface of the land to feed us, to house us, to clothe us, and to ultimately create abundance for future generations. And it's as simple as building a culture, a society, that has a deep value and awareness of the gifts that we have been given on this planet, which are, one of them simply put, vigorous and diverse and highly complex plant communities and animal communities and microbial communities. And the more that we align ourselves with the largest, most ancient organisms on this planet, like trees, we will begin to have a powerful future that gives us the real abundance, health, and wealth that we are looking for. That the industrial system is degrading, debilitating, and ultimately making it something that is a very challenging environment for humans to eke out an existence in the midst of the industrial infrastructure. And this is why water quality, watershed organizations get lost in trying to disentangle the web of contamination and get distracted because the scientists and the engineers in the Western educational model are taught to simply look at symptoms, mitigation, and existing legal measures as the best course of action. I am suggesting that those are very limited modalities that have some usability, but must be coupled with a vision. A vision that is solution-based. A vision that is based upon making use of the nutrients that right now are unused and causing pollution loads. How does this happen? Well, this happens by a retrofit. A retrofit of the industrial concept, which has been, we need to import and export all kinds of things all over the planet, and we can produce all of the electricity and power that we use to create these products that we export from systems that we transmit over very long distances. So we have centralized power, we have centralized global scale distribution technologies in all of our local communities in North America. We need to retrofit our local communities to be more self-reliant on things like electricity and creating them from renewable free energy. People like to really spend time fantasizing about Tesla and the electric solutions that Tesla had innovated when in fact there's 
ideas that are even more exciting, much more expansive than what Tesla was talking about right in front of us every day. Those technologies are ones where we tap into the power of microbes and decay and biodegradation. It's happening every day, all the time. We create lots of food scraps, lots of nutrient loads as human beings that can actually be turned into energy by technologies that capture it, harness it, and distribute it through pipes into your household. For instance, biogas, which is being created by microbes in a compost facility or in a septic tank that is actually an anaerobic digester that will take all of the nutrient loads, all the black water and gray water, eat all of the fecal coliform, and use it to help you heat your hot water, cook your food, and create electricity by running a generator off of it. In fact, it turns out that 30 million homes in China are run off of biogas. In Sweden, biogas has been so developed that in fact it is 25% cheaper at the pump. Not only do you get an energy harvest, you get a water quality cleaning service that is superior to the existing technologies that are basically enforced by planning and building departments in the rural landscapes and suburban landscapes of North America where everybody has to put in a septic tank and a leach field. Good idea, but guess what? The leach field could receive a lot less fecal and nutrient loaded material if you made the septic tank an anaerobic digester and people wouldn't need to have propane trucks and fuel oil trucks pulling up to their houses in order for them to be able to have hot water cooking and electricity available on tap, much more reliable, much more resilient, and solving a manifold array of problems that happen downstream from high-density developments where we have nutrient-loaded waters polluting surface waterways. It turns out at municipal scale this technology does a beautiful service as well of creating an energy harvest and solving a water pollution problem. This technology is not widely implemented in this country and I'm suggesting we need an entrepreneurial business sector who sets up enterprises where we install these solutions to all of the American population that wants to become part of the solution, not part of the problem, and is excited about claiming energy independence. So as I said, there are many technologies that are beyond the Tesla fantasy story that people get really distracted by and think, whoa, isn't there free energy? Of course there's free energy. The free energy on the earth is coming from the fact that there's this giant thermonuclear furnace that's pouring vast quantities of solar plasma over the earth's surface every single day, very little of which we're actually harvesting and doing much with. And when you create a community that says, let's plant trees here and not ever cut down the big ones and let them get really big, and on the edge of it, let's plant smaller ones that we rotationally harvest regularly enough that they can continuously grow back in some cases for 500 and 600 years in England. They have rotationally harvested a type of chestnut that is called the European chestnut, which is a very good eating nut. Some of the trees are let to become standards, which means they grow to be 300 years old and giants and produce vast quantities of nuts. As we create landscapes that intercept solar income 90 to 120 feet above the planet's surface, we are clearly doing a much better job of accruing, accumulating, and sequestering free energy that right now we are squandering and having it slip through our fingers and end up as urban heat island effect and a hot planet. Now, Another pattern to recognize is that rainfall is something that's happening all the time, especially in the Northeast. And what we need to follow is our directive in permaculture that points us to the approach of catch it, hold it, store it, use it, and I add to that, cycle it through as many living things as possible before it leaves your site. And by doing that with rainwater, what you've done is performed a citizen service to everybody that's adjacent to your site because by the time that rainwater leaves your site you have maximized aquifer recharge and groundwater storing of the water by catching it, holding it, storing it, and using it to feed plants and soaking it into the soil as well as storing it in tanks and slowly releasing it after rain events have happened. What you've done is you've cleaned up that water, you've made use of it, 
and you've decreased your dependence on things that are actually energy intensive ways to make water available at the tap like a well pump which is often a submersible pump that can be upwards of 200 feet in the ground and requires 220 electrical service to it in order for you to have water on tap when in many instances we could be using large rain tanks and low flow pumps that send that water from even a buried tank into a pressure tank all water systems in the northeast should be complemented and supplemented by rainwater design that is comprehensive and used to offset dependence on things like wells. This approach you will find is not discussed at all by 99% of the watershed non-governmental organizations involved in water quality and environmental action group in this country. Very little discussion about electricity, very little discussion about rainwater catchment, as well as a lack in general of comprehensive solutions that address the industrial system so that we're not simply there at the end of the pipe trying to tell dirty industries that they need to put better filters on in order so we can swim la 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 in our streams and waterways when in fact the contamination legacy is created because of a poorly designed infrastructure and a damaging economy that will inevitably take us down unless we create a better system for ourselves because the bureaucrats, the technocrats, and the corporatocracy has no interest in the well-being of the American people. They primarily have an interest in perpetuating their belief system and their ideology and they oftentimes need to be told by the people, for the people, we're going to enlist them to be part of the solution, not perpetuating the problems. And how we enlist all of us in this is by community, community by community basis design, where we begin to identify ourselves as a community that is connected through the water and the wind and the soil to each other and to future generations. And we need to honor air quality, water quality, and soil quality and create ways of living that don't perpetuate this notion that all we can ever do is be less bad and put better filters and try to design the industrial infrastructure to be something that is more green. When there is a inevitable Sisyphean struggle in that approach because of the fact that the industrial system inherently fragments and degrades landscapes by virtue of its concept of long-distance transportation of things like food and the daily essentials to the point of basically annihilating and destroying local communities, local economies in the name of a global community and a global economy. And we have sacrificed the health and the well-being we have sacrificed the resilience and the vitality of our local communities and having any semblance of a connection to the land for this supposed high life that we're going to participate in as a local community by engaging with the technocratic industrial global economy. And I would suggest to you the mythology of the technocratic global long distance transportation radioactive petrochemical economy is a debauched delusional nightmare that must be diffused and destabilized by virtue of a more compelling and articulate vision that arises out of its midst. And we are working avidly and with all of our energy on manifesting that vision. Here at the Center for Bioregional Living with our educational programming, we are addressing the core foundation of the disease of the American society and Western civilization. And the solution that we're suggesting is no longer contributing to or participating in that economy and creating a new economy. And the new economy is an economy that is more diverse, more connected to biological systems, and is engaged in creating the solutions at a comprehensive community-based level for food security, energy security, and water quality. And how we're gonna do that is by diversifying what we do with water, paying attention to where it lands in our landscapes and making use of it at that point, as well as growing more of what it is that we feed ourselves with, 
house ourselves with, clothe ourselves with, and medicate ourselves with. We're going to grow all of those things more so in our local landscapes in ways that dovetail with enhancing biodiversity and the health of the ecology. And those are all very attainable realities that we need to be working on one community at a time so that we have a collective connection between all of the communities of people and geographies that exist throughout this country and throughout the world. And we begin to once again create cuisines and artisanal products and methods of doing things that have a terroir, a very unique taste, flavor, and character that comes from only this river valley, this watershed. We have an exciting future before us where we discover new foods, new ways to enjoy living together on this planet while we dance and celebrate the fact that we have an incredibly abundant and productive planet that offers us such an amazing experience as life on Earth. Thank you for listening today. I hope you found some insights that were useful in what I had to share. Please, if you have any questions, I always really love talking shop and having dialogue with people about how do we collaborate and move forward creating this new economy, this new infrastructure, and a cultural understanding of the beauty of our inheritance where we appreciate what it is that happens every day on this planet and talk about it more. Where does the rain come from? How much do we receive? What are we doing with it? Why is it that we tend to think that our own bodies and what comes out of them are things that can't be used for productive and healthy, fertile farm systems? And how about if we start to take all of the things that right now we send into dumps and we make them out of things that we can send to compost piles? As we address the two-fold issues of what we make things out of and what we generate energy with, we will begin to claim our autonomy, our integrity, and our independence in a way that perpetuates true health and true wealth, which present generations will thank us for these jobs with integrity, jobs that honor human intelligence and dignity, and the meaningful dimensions that begin to emerge that address all these issues as well, like prison economies and opioid addiction. So thanks again for listening. Stay in touch. We've got some bold visions that are going to bring about, as Adriana is calling it, a bright future. So I look forward to manifesting that with you. Be well.